American Dissected is brought to you by the DeBeaumont Foundation. For 25 years, the DeBeaumont Foundation has worked to create practical solutions that can improve the health of communities across the country. The foundation advances policy, builds partnerships, and strengthens systems to give everyone the opportunity to achieve their best possible health. To learn more, visit DeBeaumont.org. New evidence suggests that COVID may be spreading widely in white-tailed deer, with troubling implications for humans. The president of Stanford University resigns over allegations of data manipulation. Heat is gripping communities around the world with deadly consequences. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Hear that? No? If you're someone who doesn't have to live with the constant din of background noise in your community, consider yourself lucky or privileged. But chances are, no matter where you are or where you live in this world in 2023, it has a particular soundtrack. I lived in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan in grad school. That soundtrack, the overground subway, and the fading sound of Dembo, the uniquely fast-paced Dominican music that was so popular in the community. The suburbs? They sound like mowers or leaf blowers in the distance. Alexandria, Egypt, where I spent so many childhood summers, the constant horns of 70s irrelatas, street vendors selling watermelon or prickly pear, and the call to prayer. Today, we're talking about the public health implications of noise. For a long time, we just assumed that noise was simply a nuisance, an annoying thing that occurred in the background of some of our lives. But here's the thing about it. Hearing is one of our only senses that we can't turn off. And I want you to think through why. We are, at our most simple, both predators and prey. If you think about it, for folks who have that sense, hearing is one of the only ones you can't turn off. The other is smell. Both are absolutely critical to bagging that next meal or avoiding becoming some meal for another. A large part of our brains evolved to pay very particular attention to the sound we hear in the distance. You know, that rustling in the leaves or that growling in the distance. And we can't turn it off because imagine our ancestors being hunted while they were sleeping. It turns out it's a good thing that loud sounds wake us up. But modernity, well, that's the consequence of all that time our ancestors and their progeny invested in controlling our surroundings. Most of the sounds we hear every day are the product of something predictable. We don't have to say it, but how often does our brain notice a sound and then explain it away? Oh, uh, that's my alarm clock, or oh, that's the train. Oh, that's the lawnmower. You get where I'm coming from here. But even though it happens subconsciously, it turns out that there's a real cost to all that noise. It comes in the form of some of our hormonal wiring. The fact that even if our brain understands that the sound deluge of modernity is usually nothing to be worried about, it doesn't stop it from triggering our stress hormones, the hormones that evolved to prepare our ancestors who really had to worry about every single noise to fight or run. And over time, having our bodies in perpetual fight-or-flight mode leads us to all kinds of downstream health consequences. High cortisol, our long-term stress hormone, is associated with heart disease, diabetes, stroke, certain cancers, and even if every landscape has its soundscape, it's clear that not every soundscape is created equal. And just like place, exposure to sound isn't evenly distributed. It turns out that even the soundscapes that we live in tend to be more dangerous for lower income and marginalized groups. Think about it. Who's more likely to be forced to live next to a noisy highway or a constantly buzzing transformer or a tornado siren? And that doesn't even get us to the health of the hearing organ itself. Hearing loss is one of the few health challenges that is getting profoundly worse over time. To be sure, 
It's a problem of our own making. To understand why, I want you to think about how much of your day you spend with the headphones or earpods you're probably listening to this on in your ear. A few weeks back, I came across the work of Professor Erica Walker, an epidemiologist who studies the health impact of noise, and I knew I had to have her on the pod to discuss her work on the health consequences of noise, hearing loss, and the inequities in who's most likely to be affected. Here's my conversation with Professor Erica Walker. Okay, it's recording. All right. Can you introduce yourself for the tape? Yes, uh, my name is Erica Walker, and I am the RGSS Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at the Brown University School of Public Health. Professor Walker, we really, really appreciate you coming on the show. I um, feel like I need to be extra noisy during this this, this <laughs> podcast. And let me just start with the first bit of noise. Like I'm always a fan of professors of epidemiology, like my kind of people. So uh, I, I appreciate you coming on. You study something really interesting because most of us, when we think about a place, tend to think about the visual features of that place. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is that and we are very, very visual creatures. If you look at the sort of proportion of our brain space, most of it is dedicated to uh, visual processing. But our visual processing tends not to be the most emotional. Um, the most emotional, you know, in order is probably smell, then taste, then sound. And the part that we usually can't turn off is the sound part, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can close your eyes. You can, you know, in some respects, breathe through your mouth. You can decide not to taste something. But you can't stop hearing for the most part. You can try and cover your ears. But if it's, if it's, if it's noisy enough, you're going to get that sound. And, you know, when I, when I think, when somebody tells me, think about the sound of New York City, you know, I think about a screeching subway. When somebody says, think about the sound of some nondescript suburban community, I think about lawnmowers. Uh, <laughs> when somebody says, think about the sound of the ocean, you know, it's the canonical waves with the seagulls. And I take that somewhat for granted unless I'm cued to think about that. But that soundscape is so much a part of the places we live because we can't shut it off. Now, one of the interesting pieces, and I'm I'm just sort of going off here, is I have a a six-month-old and we were recently in New York. And, uh, you know, we live, we live in a, in a relatively small, uh, town and we were in the city and she just couldn't sleep because of the sound. And it was interesting because my wife and I have lived in New York and it took us, you know, a good several months to be able to fall asleep with, you know, the sound of, um, of Dembo in the background and, you know, the, 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 the train running up the one and, you know, people, uh, hanging out to all hours of the night. Um, but our six month old, right. She's only been exposed to a certain thing. And, you know, no matter what we tried to do, we couldn't shut it off. It was just an interesting reminder because her response to this was that she'd fall asleep and then something would wake her up and she'd be terrified. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, we take for granted that that initial emotion of scary sounds actually is something we have to force ourselves to stop paying attention to or not. And, and that's, that's why I was really compelled to, to sit down with you because you've been thinking about that, um, from the jump. Can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in studying soundscapes in relation to our health? <laughs> it's not a beautiful story. It's one that I'm really ashamed to tell. But, you know, it's funny. I've always, I think since I've been very young, I've been cued into sound. It's probably being my primary sense. I don't know. I have the last name Walker. So when it came to classrooms, I had to sit in the back. <laughs> so mm. I had to really concentrate to hear my teacher. So sound was just always something that it was just 
how I was able to to learn um, due to where I sat in the classroom. And I also grew up in a in a rural town where you would think wouldn't be inundated with sounds, but I lived next to two major highways and a railway, so it was actually mm. quite quite loud in my hometown. Um, but you know, I moved off to the big city, forgot all of that stuff, and um, what, became a working artist after I graduated from college. And I moved into an apartment that was a basement level apartment because it was the cheapest. And one day. Well, this basement apartment was also my studio. So I made furniture mm. and I was a bookbinder. And one day this family moved in above me and they had these two small kids. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> and they ran across their floor, which was my ceiling for like 24 hours a day. Mm. And because my living arrangement was also my office space, I was there 24 hours a day and I was exposed to that 24 hours a day. And through the process of trying to get them evicted, I mean, like I just really wanted them to 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 move out. Um, I was going to take them to small claims court. So I started gathering evidence, like how loud they were when it happened. I even took saliva samples and sent them off to a laboratory to be tested for stress hormones. Mm. But in that in that process of trying to get rid of my upstairs neighbors, um, ran across a really a bunch of interesting perspectives from other people that were dealing to with similar issues or very different issues, but they were all related to to sound. And I got so obsessed with it that one of my really close friends was like, I really think that you should like take a chill pill, do something else. Uh, maybe you would like this field called public health. And I was like, what is public health? And I read about it, applied to public health schools. And I guess like the rest is sort of what I'm doing now. So this, this family, uh, they were they were keeping you up at night, but they also kind of gave you a career. Yeah, I, I credit them. I wish I could email the guy and be like, hey, you changed my life. Um, it was a very miserable experience. Two years of nonstop uh, assault. But yeah, you know, sometimes things happen for a reason. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm sorry about that experience. And <laughs> also sorry about the you know broader climate in which, you know, we are all uh asked in in circumstances uh to live in 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 challenging positions where um you know we we are oftentimes um you, you explain your circumstances but in 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 moments of low income you think about what it means to put a whole bunch of people in relatively poorly built um apartment buildings where there is no sound insulation um, and it, it can be such an undignifying experience for everybody involved. Right. And, and that's, you know, that's if, if you house, have, have housing, right. Um, Correct. so it's something to, you know, to think about oftentimes, I think we, when we're in those circumstances, we always think about us relative to others, but you know, it's that, it's that broader context that forces us into these situations, which is, you know, entirely the subject of your, of your research now. Can you tell us a little bit about what is noise pollution? You know, how do you think about it? And, how do you characterize it? How do you measure it? Yeah. So I first always say that I study sound and communities tell me or individuals, concerned individuals, communities tell me what's noise. Uh, noise is unwanted sound. And I just kind of go in the direction of where there are issues. So, you know, we think of sound as an audible wave that we process primarily through the auditory system. It's something that we hear. Um, but 
when it comes to a threshold where an individual or a community deems it to be something unwanted, that's kind of where I step in because I kind of want to figure out, well, what is it? Where is it coming from? How long has it been there? Why is it there? Who's exposed to it? How it's impacting their health? Um, And how can we measure it in ways that actually accurately capture the experience or things that are important to me? Mm. And in terms of the the pathway from you know sound that becomes noise to health what are the ways in which noise translates to to ill health yep uh it could be uh through sleep loss either you lose your the hours of sleep that you get or the quality of sleep that you that you get or it most most commonly sleep loss and just this mood disruption you know you sort of Here's something you process it as something that you don't want to be exposed to, and your body prepares um, a response very similar to a flight or fight response, or a similar response to if you were in a dark alley and out jumps a ferocious pit bull. Your body's like, either I'm going to fight this or I'm going to run away from it. So, you know, if you've ever experienced that flight or fight stress response, your body begins to prepare itself for battle. Your heart rate begins to increase. Your stomach feels uneasy. You begin to sweat, um, and that constant, um, that consistent stimulation of that stress response over a long period of time can lead to very serious negative health impacts, from the cardiovascular to um, mental health impacts. Mm. What are some of the long-range consequences that have been identified in studies about? Uh, exposure to noise. Um, what are what are we seeing in folks with with chronic exposure versus those with less? Yep, hypertension, myocardial infarction, cardiovascular related mortality, depression, increased medication use, uh, a lot lots of different things. You know, cognitive mm. outcomes, especially in children, developmental outcomes, just a, a whole host of issues. Can I ask you what forms of noise are the most damaging? Because you can imagine a situation where there is a consistent din of noise, mm-hmm. i.e., you know, I live next to a busy highway, or uh, I'm just in New York City where it's just loud, versus regular, unpredictable sounds that over the course of a day are predictable, i.e., I live near a train station or near train tracks and the train is going to come. I don't know when it's coming, but I know it's going to come. And I hear that noise. It scares me for a second. And I'm like, that's just the train. And then over time, I subconsciously start to tune it out. Like which of these forms of noise uh, exposure are the most, are the worst for us? You know, that's a really good question. I always say it's the one that keeps you up at night. It's the one that stresses you out. So, and I always, when it comes to to defining noise, I always defer to the individual or community that I'm working with because they're the ones that are going to tell what is unwanted and what's not and how and why. But it's whatever sound it is, no matter how quiet or how loud it is, that sets off that flight or fight response, response that noise that stresses you out that's or keeps you up at night, doesn't um, allow you to go to sleep, restore your body. That's the kind. And it could be, it could take on any form, actually. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm immediately as a as a father of two children, five and under. Um, the noise that stresses me out is—I <laughs> hate to say it, 
comes from the thing that I love most and hold most dearly, which is my children. <laughs> and, you know, whether it's my, <laughs> Hey, so you, right. Like, I mean, that, that, I, I, I feel like you have a, um, a appreciation for that, those parents of those toddlers now when you, yeah. when you're just like, please stop, please, please yeah. stop. Um, and the number of times I say that in my mind, right. I, I know that saying that to a, a child who can't process it is not going to do anything, but like, you know, in the middle of the night you wake up and you're trying to calm your child down. The overwhelming emotion is please stop, please yeah. stop this emotional <laughs> terrorism. I don't know why you're doing this. That's um, a good way of putting it. I like that term. But it's like, it's just, and, and it's the, it really is. It's the noise. It's like, yeah. you know, we could, we could easily, I mean, there, the number of times I, I catch myself trying to reason this out. I was like, we, we can address this. All, you, all that has happened is that you have soiled your diaper and I can fix this for you. Please stop <laughs> yeah. making that awful noise. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, did you see that recent video that went viral where there was a guy on a plane and he's basically just having a meltdown because there's some loud kid um, terrorizing the plane? And it's like on one hand, you really feel for this guy because I know you can reach that tipping point when you're exposed to a sound that you can't control. Um, but then on the other hand, I know that kids are small human beings who don't, who don't yet, the only way that they can communicate is through that. And it's kind of like a, I'm kind of torn. <laughs> you know, it's funny, the, the degree to which I have patience for um, my child's wailing decreases with time in large part, yeah. because it's just like, you know, better. Right. Yeah. So now when my five-year-old decides to have a tantrum, I'm like, Hey, we did that for two years. You, yeah. don't, you don't get to do that anymore. Okay. Yeah. You just don't get to do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I, yeah, I, I have I didn't see the video, but I, you know, I, I've, I've been that person on that airplane. At the same time, I've been the parent of that yeah. kid on that airplane. And and you're like mortified that your child is, yeah, is acting out person. on this plane. Exactly. You're like, I'm so, I'm so deeply sorry to all of you. But at the same time, yo, like what do you want me to do? Kid needs yeah. to see their grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when uh, we were growing up, our parents used to give us like, Iquil or something like when we would get on the plane or train or bus. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we would just sleep. <laughs> but what it, what it highlights is, is that those things that can be the most stressful aren't necessarily always odious. It's just a sort of a, a function of uh, our lives. And also, if you just think evolutionarily, the thing that babies do is cry because their survival and therefore your you know genetic inheritance depends mm -hmm. on your um, immediate emotional disturbance at this thing. And so that Correct. cry, right, is is a really powerful, very odious tool. Here's what's actually really fascinating. Yeah. Cats, when they um, when they complain, they complain at the same decibel and um, frequency as babies crying. Yeah. It's like this incredible yeah. evolution yeah. To, to force us to pay attention because we absolutely yeah. hate that sound. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask, um, in, in studies, you know, I, I, the part of this conversation is inherently ableist, and I want to address that because there are, of course, people who, who cannot hear, for whom there is no um, auditory noise or sound. Have there anybody been any studies to look at the the differences in um, in emotional levels according to noise pollution among folks who are Deaf. I mean, it strikes me that there's a remarkable natural experiment happening right there. Obviously, deaf um, people, because of our society, are not accommodated in certain ways, which creates a certain confounding uh, exposure to stress. But I'm wondering if if that's been studied at all. 
So uh, I, I spent a large part of my career actively avoiding the hearing loss literature just because I just, it just didn't speak to me. It's kind of like when people wanted me to make children's furniture and I really wanted to focus on adults. It was like, it was something that didn't appeal to me. So I actually you like cut it out of my life. However, recently we have, um, we are working with high school students and we are doing an, you know a cohort study in my home state and we work with high school students. And one of the first things that we noticed uh, when we interacted with them is that they had those hearing devices that were up really loud. And for children of that age, they have already slight to moderate hearing loss in one or both ears. A lot of them are listening mm. to um, ear, you know, headphones or in one ear, like listening devices in one ear. So they have, which is very remarkable than what we have seen previously. But um, so that kind of got me into the hearing loss literature. But we've had focus groups with people who are hearing impaired and they still can hear, but they just hear things very differently. So some frequencies are exaggerated Mm. or a lot of the times to compensate, they have to turn things up louder, which further damages their Mm. hearing. So you know, they can still hear, some of them can still hear unless they're just, you know, profoundly deaf, but they just hear differently. And so, like I was saying, some things could drive them in, like drive them insane. Like if you have your volume on your TV down really low and there's like a, they can, it, it actually, it, it, some of them can process it as very loud. A lot of them are disturbed by things you wouldn't even notice were on like um, refrigerator hum. You know, Mm. things like that, you know, they can, so they just, for those who can still hear, but have, you know, uh, moderate or extremely severe hearing loss and those that can still hear, hear, but they hear differently. Uh, So that, that, that is, that is really fascinating in some respects um, for folks who are not hearing impaired, the uh processing of sounds that are tuned specifically for folks who are not hearing impaired allow them to be processed more clearly if i understand what you're you're saying and then for hearing impaired folks some of these sounds that we um those of us who are not hearing impaired can tune out become mm-hmm. particularly noxious it's it's interesting my my uh my wife sara hates the sound of white noise cannot stand it and she just needs to turn it off. So whenever there's like a fan, a a cooking fan on, for example, she just needs to have it off. The other one that bothers her is the sound of uh, a television when it's on mute. Yeah. Right. It has has a really high pitched hum. Yes. Yes. So it's really interesting, right? These sounds that we somewhat take for granted. I mean, think about white noise by definition is something you turn on. It's interesting, right? You're turning up a baseline din so that you do not hear the episodic sound of something else, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we used, for example, for my daughter in New, in New York. We just turned on yeah. really, really loud white noise and yeah. it drove my wife crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is, it, it's a really interesting point insofar as it changes the, 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 the rhythm almost of what you're, um, what you're exposed to. I, I want to also ask you just about inequities, right? One of the things that anybody who's looked at the relationship between any kind of environment and health immediately starts to appreciate is that noxious stimuli are not evenly distributed and neither are people. And if you look at the distribution of noxious stimuli and people, almost always uh, poor folks 
and marginalized folks um, uh, tend to be concentrated in the places with the highest levels of noxious stimuli, right? Mm-hmm. And because of uh, our country's um, uh, racist history, that tends to mean that you're talking about concentrations of low-income black folks in the places that are the most noxious, whether you're talking about air quality, whether you're talking about risk of uh, automotive injury, whether you're talking about um, uh, the quality of, of roads, uh, whether you're talking about access to, to food and healthcare, all of these things <clears throat> tend to be distributed this way. Can you tell us about, about the distribution of, of noise? Yeah. Um, so before I did my pit stop in public health, I first started with urban planning, which really opened mm. my eyes to the way our cities are laid out. So I think that by design, intentionally so, we have created these really poor urban planning policies that essentially put all of the people we don't want to necessarily interact with in areas that are undesirable. Mm. So, or in areas that are undesirable, we decide to dump all of our uh, acoustical trash. So Mm. that means that, well, a train or a highway can run through a very poor neighborhood, or we can put the the H four, we can have an HVAC system or some sort of uh, transformer that is really loud and annoying in a poor neighborhood, or we could plan for all of the nightclubs and entertainment districts to be in poor communities. So I think that we have intentionally designed our cities to put the people who don't have the power to to advocate for more or better. Um, in, in, in the most undesirable areas of our city, or we put the most undesirable elements or in our city in those neighborhoods that house those people, including mm. myself. Like I lived in a very uh, unambiguously <laughs> designed um, community where the community was intersected by a railway and the black people lived on one side of town and the mm. white people lived on the other side of town. And on our side of town was a creek that flooded all the time and then literally an open sewer lagoon. Mm. So would that would you put an open sewer lagoon in a community with wealthy white people? The answer is no, for many reasons, um, because their their perceived value in society is higher, and they know that if you <laughs> propose to put a sewer lagoon, they're going to come out and and protest that heavily. Um, so for me, it all start it starts and ends with poor. Uh, poor urban planning policies. Support for this podcast comes from Marguerite Casey Foundation. What fuels and sustains activism and organizing when it feels like our worlds are collapsing around us? Let this radicalize you. Organizing and the Revolution of Reciprocal Care, a new book out now at Haymarket Books. Share stories that illustrate possible answers to that urgent question. Now you can hear directly from the co-authors of the book at the next Marguerite Casey Foundation Virtual Book Club on August 9th. Marguerite Casey Foundation President and CEO Carmen Rojas will be joined by longtime organizers Kelly Hayes and MCF Freedom Scholar Mariame Kaba for a candid conversation about the book and how organizing can and must be an antidote to despair. RSVP today and get a free copy of the book while supplies last at caseygrants.org slash AUG9. That's C-A-S-E-Y-G-R-A-N-T-S dot org backslash AUG9. This episode is brought to you by Karyuma, the cool, sustainable sneaker company with old-school style and new-school ethics. Karyuma is B Corp certified and has a dedicated reforestation program based in the Brazilian rainforest. Their co-founders, David and Fernando, both grew up there, so this project is especially close to home. For every pair of sneakers sold, Karyuma plants two trees, and they've already planted over 2 million trees to date. 
look, to me, it's pretty awesome. I wear two shoes and I know that I got two trees planted and they look great. We all need a staple sneaker for the summertime. With over 40,000 five-star reviews and just having cleared a 94,000-person wait list, these shoes just keep breaking the internet. Carryuma's got you covered with shoes that have a classic look, are crazy comfortable, and consciously crafted for your ultimate daily summer shoe. From paparazzi shots to guys in the office, these sneakers are everywhere, and for good reason. Look, I love the shoes because, well, they got everything I want in shoes. They're extremely comfortable. They look great. I can match them with almost any outfit, and they last for a really long time. On top of that, I know I'm not hurting the environment. I'm helping. Carryuma ships all their sneakers free and fast in the USA and offers worldwide shipping and 60-day free returns. They deliver right to your front door using single-box recyclable packaging. And for a limited time, America Dissected listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your pair of Carryuma sneakers. Go to cariuma.com slash ad15 to get 15% off. That's cariuma.com slash ad15 for 15% off only for a limited time. You already know what you need to do to help the planet. So what's holding you back? 10 minutes to save the planet takes you from best intentions to achievable solutions, and it won't take more than 10 minutes of your day. The podcast offers concrete advice rooted in behavioral science to make that change finally stick. Find 10 minutes to save the planet everywhere you get your podcasts. What does mitigation look like, right? It, it, um, <laughs> at some point, there, there is always going to be noise. And um, the question of how we, A, mitigate that noise, but B, evenly distribute that noise, what does that look like? How, how should it look? What, what does urban planning to address noise pollution actually look like? It looks like going back and really taking a look at all of these policies in place that has put these kinds of things in these, in these marginalized communities mm-hmm. and repair that. Right. So, um, you know, if you if you put a major highway through a poor community, you need to now go back and mitigate that by sound walls or, um, you know, uh, soundproof windows. I don't know. You need you need to mitigate that 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 poor planning practice. But then going forward, you need to be very intentional about the acoustical environment when you are planning how to put things um, in our cities, like where you're going to put them, who you're going to put them next to, um, et cetera. And then, you know, there's this talk of reparations. You know, I'm not going to get into that because I'm not, you know, like, I don't know. I don't like to talk about things I don't know much about. Um, But I think there is some sort of repair that needs to happen for all of that harm. And we're just talking about noise, but usually where there's noise, there's other things too lurking in the background. There's probably poor water quality. There's probably um, horrible visual pollution. There's probably terrible air quality. The soil is probably horrible. So it's like everything is in a bubble and in a, in a, in a, in a concentration around in these communities. So noise is just one aspect of that. Um, And one can argue it's the canary in the coal mine, but then you need to go back and repair for those, uh, for those mistakes, quote unquote mistakes that have been made in urban planning. You know, one analogy that's, that it keeps coming to mind and I'm, you know, I'm from Michigan, so cars are always on the top of mind, but you know, we don't appreciate that a muffler literally is meant to muffle the sound of an engine. And <laughs> what people don't appreciate is like, if you took a muffler off an engine, it is extremely loud, right? Uh, an automotive yeah. engine without a muffler is extremely, extremely loud. And a muffler is a piece of equipment we deliberately put on a engine to keep it quiet. And, yeah. you know, you think about a, a nice car, 
right? They, they, they're not usually, I mean, nobody makes a, a, a super loud luxury, you know, Mercedes or BMW. Now, yeah, there's some tuner cars that deliberately aren't meant to be loud, but even then it's because you've got like a fancy muffler that's supposed to really get that, that right, that right acoustic. It's, you know, interesting with electric cars, they've now designed sound making pieces that are both mm-hmm. in part about safety, because if, if you can't hear the car coming, that's a problem, but also is about just the the joy of the sound of the car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like this notion of of the money you spend to control sound and who gets that money spent on them and who doesn't, right? You talked yeah. about sound walls uh, on a highway or, you know, just just uh, distances, right? In terms of mm-hmm. how far you can zone from a highway exactly. that tends to be different on one side of the tracks like you talked about versus on the other. And um, these are choices that are made about about um, about what what you are required to do when it comes to urban planning that tend to be about the ability, like you said, for some people to leverage their power and prestige to change public policy and some people who don't have that ability. And yeah. sound is, like you said, just one of those pieces. Um, has has there been uh, efforts you know, in different parts of the country to actually address this noise pollution? Have there been efforts to go back and say, you know, as part of the inequity that was created when we built this railroad or highway here, we are going to go back and invest in um, sound walls, or go back and invest in um, you know offering subsidies to homeowners to uh, install soundproof glass. Has there been any effort to do this? I've never heard. I don't want to speak because I haven't read every piece of literature in the country, but I don't think so. I mean, because mm. it's very expensive. Um, I remember a pretty wealthy community that I was working with um, in in Massachusetts. They were arguing to get a sound wall and they were given the the the, the runaround. So I just can't imagine. Uh, no, I don't think so. I've never heard of it. Mm. Because I mean, think about it though. Like you, if you, you know, you know, you're going to, you're going to need highways. You're going to need entertainment venues. You're going to need restaurants. You're going to need things that are loud in a city, right? Where are you going to put them? You're going to put them in the place where people aren't going to either they're not going to feel empowered to say anything or they just don't have the time to think about that based on the other stressors in their life. So you're going to put them in those kind of communities because that is the most efficient strategy. I'm not saying it's the most it's the moral or right strategy, but no one's going to change the uh, mechanism that rewards efficiency and 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 uh, yeah, no one's going to change that. So I, I don't expect that. And I would be surprised if that did happen. Mm. Can you tell me why we like the sound of some noise and not others? So, you know, I, I personally am someone who loves the sound of rain. I really yeah. enjoy it when I hear it. It it puts me at ease, even though the rain is kind of dangerous, right? I mean, yeah. objectively speaking, if it's raining and I got an issue with my roof or, you know, I, uh, something's outside, water can damage a lot of things, but I enjoy the sound of it. Ocean, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my, my family's from Alexandria in Egypt. And so the sound of the ocean for me is, you know, is like, is like, reminds me reminds me of a certain sense of home um why do we like some of these sounds i mean you can't turn them off right and so one of the 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 points of that that we're kind of getting at is the ability to control sound and you know you really can't turn off some of those sounds um why is it though that some of these sounds are are soothing even though you know if you just think about it these are noise we can't control that just exists I think it could be something psychological, right? Like it, 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 
brings you back to a place that resonates with you either consciously or subconsciously. I think sometimes it's because it's something that we can control, you know, like, Mm. so I may not like white noise. I don't put in my, I don't put white noise in my headphones and go for a run, but it's something that I can control. And it's something that can empower me to not have to listen to things that I can't control. So I think some of them are coping mechanisms, um, power strategies. And I also think that, you know, some of them are just enjoyable. Like I personally, I love uh, listening to people like the ASMR videos where people eat mm. in the microphone. I love that. Now, would I want to go to a restaurant and sit next to a guy that's smacking? Like, I don't know. But I love ASMR videos. I love hearing people eat food. It's just, it's very soothing for me. So there's something about that that soothes my spirit. And so mm-hmm. I think there's just a many different reasons why a person uh, responds positively or negatively to a sound. Mm. That's, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, I am someone who really enjoys the sounds of big cities. Me too. And <laughs> I, I like, I like that feeling of having all that clutter and almost in some respects, it makes me feel, uh, it makes me feel anonymous yeah. in a, in a weird way. Like I, I can just get lost in this crowd of people, which is ironic because, you know, there's all kinds of other people who are like there with you, but that is there's there's something happening and I can get lost in that thing happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. And, you know, and, and, and I, I think it's a, it's an interesting question because the experience of the sound of the city uh, when we lived in New York was very different when we lived in Washington Heights, which was a lower income part of uh, Manhattan versus when we lived um, in, you know, in Midtown, which was mm-hmm. a, a very different um, location. And uh, it's that, you know, it's, it's, it's that question of, you know, does the, does the subway run underground or overground where you are? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How close is your window to that subway? And then, um, you know, that there's the, the question of uh, all of the other, you know, random noises that are, that are made. So like when you have centrally, uh, cooled buildings in a particular part of town, they don't make much noise, but in the summer in parts of the city, all you hear is the din of air conditioners, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. and those, 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 those sounds qualitatively differ. I want to yeah. switch back to your, your least favorite part of this, um, conversation about hearing loss, because I, I just think it is. <laughs> You know, it really is going to be a pretty profound epidemic for folks of our generation and beyond in large Absolutely. part because you're right. Like, I don't go anywhere without a pair of AirPods in my pocket, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 like phone keys wallet. For me, it's like phone keys wallet AirPods, right? And mm-hmm. um, and I consistently have my AirPods on and I know that I'm one of the first generations in history that's been able to have consistent, constant sound in my ears yeah. at um, direct level. That wasn't a thing that you could do, you know, not more than 40 years ago. And so, you know, I think about the level of hearing loss in my my dad's generation um, and the generation before him. And then I think about uh, about the, the kind of hearing loss that we're going to have. And it, like you said, it's already um, it's already bearing out about just how bad are we, uh, is that hearing loss right now in younger generations? And what does that mean for the future? 
It's pretty bad. So like I said, so I, for the past year, I have a, a research intern, a research assistant who is in my home state of Mississippi measuring hearing loss in high school students. Um, so middle school and high school students, and she's following them over a period of time. So she just did her first panel of students, um, I guess her first cohort she's enrolled. And we're talking about children as young as 13 years old having profound hearing loss uh in either one or both ears usually it's one ear and it's usually the ear that they're using to talk on the phone or listen to music and when so we we give them hearing screenings but then we also like measure the volume in their what they're listening to and they're listening to levels 100 decibels and like if you wow. use osha or niasha's osha's or niasha's um hearing conservation levels at that sound level with hearing protection, you should only be exposed to that for, you know, 30 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour. And these kids are listening. Like when we ask them, well, how long are you listening to this for? And they're like, you know, all day, like literally all day. The only time they don't listen to it is when they're in the shower. And then when they go to bed, they turn on the speaker, put it right next to their uh, nightstand and listen to that. So we're beginning to see hearing loss that is astronomical in comparison to my generation. Wow. That is, uh, that is, that is nuts. And I think about, you know, when I was younger, I used to enjoy music at quite a lot louder than I do now. And it's interesting, actually, you know, I always wondered why like older folks when I was really young, why older folks didn't enjoy them like music at that level. Yeah. And I, and now that I'm, you know, nearing 40, I'm in the situation where I hear really loud music, like, turn that down. Yeah. Why is that so loud? You just, yeah. you can't even hear it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, when you, when you create that norm, it's a real problem. And I, I'm wondering if the manufacturers of these products don't have a role to play here, right? Um, you know, with the technology that you have available, you in theory could make self-delimiting um, headphones where they just over a certain period of time will not play at a certain level lot higher than, than, um, than what you what you ought to be exposed to. Has there been any effort to um to hold them accountable for this? I hope not. I know like so as a as a researcher who actively monitors a cohort of people throughout their lives, who actively puts sensors up in communities, um, who actively works against uh these community you know, works in support tries to collect data to support communities as they deal with their uh, issues. I, that just sounds real big brother to me. <laughs> so like, I always have to find this balance of this is just the way things are. This describing the harms and letting people, prov- I say that my role as an epidemiologist, especially one that's, that studies noise issues is to provide everyone with a basket of goods where if they chose from that basket of goods, they have the options to maximize their health and well-being. But I don't want to put anything in that basket of goods that leaves that control away from them. Um, so I don't know. It sounds like a good idea, but it just sounds a little big brother. Let <laughs> me, uh, I want let me, that. No, I hear you. And let me let me push back just because I think yeah, it's yeah. there's an analogy in our history that's worth um engaging with, which is cars. Early on, um the way that cars were built. They were built to protect the car, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, yes. if a car got an accident, it wasn't about protecting the human inside the car. It was about protecting the car. And the level of quality control in terms of parts 
meant that you know you you had a sort of a, a level of um, obsolescence that was built into the car. They mm-hmm. they wanted this thing to break down, so you had to get a new one pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a whole consumer rights movement that really fundamentally shifted what cars were built to do. The requirement, for example, that every car had a seatbelt and that you had to wear one. Uh, the requirement that cars had to meet particular safety standards. Because part of the issue is that I don't know that when you're talking about 13-year-old children, they actually think through what the long-term consequences of listening to very loud music is. Mm -hmm. And I think if you talk to them 30 years on and you say, hey, now you've you've got profound hearing loss and you're not going to hear in full detail the sound of your, your daughter's cooing. Mm-hmm. Do you wish someone would have done something to protect you from that really, really loud sound you had in your ear all day? I think most of them would say, yeah, I wish I did because mm-hmm. I didn't know. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so yeah. I think there's this world where we're told that everyone's a perfect consumer and that they'll make their choices as they are. But I worry that particularly when you're talking about kids, because this is who you're talking about, right? Who tend mm-hmm. to be the most exposed, mm-hmm. that there is not that agency to be able to make really good decisions. And I worry that it's assumed that these things are safe because you're not feeling the consequences of them today, even though you're going to feel the consequences of them later. And, you know, there's a world where you could do this, where you could turn off the governor, for example, which is to say, listen, (laughs) you know, if you want to listen to this as loud as it goes, we could do that. But at baseline, right, you have to choose against that, right? Um, Rather than, you know, you're just, you can play it as loud as you want and suffer the consequences later and, you know, whatever, it was your choice, right? And that's the thing I worry about, which is, you know, when you're talking about kids and their long-term hearing loss about decisions that they make when they're 13 and they're pressured to like listen to the music extra, extra loud, Mm -hmm. I don't know that they're making the best decisions and that they even can make the best decisions for themselves. So that's where education comes in. Like when I was a young kid, I didn't recycle. I think no, like when I grew up in the 80s, no one recycled, um, but no one <laughs> put a sensor in my trash can to make sure I had separated things uh, and make sure I was recycling properly. I went to school. They had educational programs that taught us about the benefits of recycling. And I found that to be like I had this my own eureka moment that made me believe in the movement to where it was just and I thought about ways to recycle other things, you know, like, so I was just recycling. We were, at that time, we were just doing glass cans and that's it. But then even myself with my creativity, I was able to think about, well, maybe we can recycle other things too. But if I was, if there was some mechanism that was forcing my hand um, in a way that I wasn't being educated about why they're forcing my hand, I'm also, I'm going to, do something because someone's telling me to do it, but I'll never be able to have the education and gener- to generate the creativity to move beyond that. So I don't know. I think the education, and that's one of the things that we do in the schools, we educate them, we show them the correlations, and we hope that they make better decisions. But I kind of go on the less big brother, more uh, education. And we saw that during COVID, I know, like as public health people, we saw that force wasn't necessarily the best way to get people to uh, appreciate the benefits of the vaccine. I think that what we found was most um, beneficial was, you know, educating people about uh, what the vaccine was as opposed to just mandating it. Um, So I don't know. Education plays a big role in what people decide to do. Yeah, I, I, um, I, 
of course, we'll never disagree with you about education. But I also think that <laughs> there's a role there's a role for for um, for setting a baseline expectation. And I don't think that you know banning loud uh, headphones is really the way to go. But I do think that um, making sure that folks have a sense, you know, in the in the the product itself, a sense of what the risks are of this, right? Mm-hmm. Because especially when you're talking about long term consequences for short-term joy that's mm-hmm. where things sometimes that that there becomes a real challenge i mean you think about smoking for example right it mm-hmm. is from what i understand joyful to smoke in a short period of time the long-term consequences are what you really worry about yeah. and humans are not very good at addressing the discounting of the future especially yeah. you know 13 year old humans who are listening to their favorite song um I, I want to ask you, you know, you've been doing some really great work around noise sound in Mississippi. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? <laughs> yes. So during COVID, when the world got quiet, except in certain locations, which is another, I've been waiting for somebody to talk to me about that. <laughs> like what happened during COVID where there was this like weird thing where there were some areas of our country that were really quiet and some areas of our country that were really loud. But during COVID, I kind of had like a eureka moment because a reporter reached out to me and she was like, Erica, it's so quiet out here. You know, everyone's staying at home. How quiet is it? And, you know, I went outside my neighborhood and I was like, wow, it's really quiet. It's so beautiful. Um, But I lived in a pretty nice neighborhood at the time. And so I remember that evening, one of my former students, because before I was a a starving artist, I was also a high school teacher. And one of my students reached out to me and she was like, Eric, I know you're doing noise stuff, but I I live in a neighborhood where there's this incessant firework activity. Um, And it just turned into this big thing where across the country, you know, a lot of black and brown communities were inundated with firework noise. So during that time, I had this sort of epiphany that if I'm not focusing on the right places, I'm going to miss the the, the 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 true story. Like if I'd only focused mm. what was happening just outside of my door, I would have missed this whole other issue that was negatively impacting people like me across the country. So I just kind of got fed up with doing work via Community Noise Lab um, in areas where everything was just set up for success. Everything looked the same. Everyone felt empowered. Um, there were, there was great sources for data. Everything worked because everything was made to work. Mm. And I was like, this would never work in a place like my home state of Mississippi. And for me, in order to be successful, it should work. Your ideas should work when it's supposed to work and they should mm. still work when they're not supposed to work. So for me, Mississippi, my home state with lots of um, environmental issues, I feel like if my strategies, my research strategies are successful, <clears throat> then we need to try them out in Mississippi. And if they aren't successful, I will learn a lot and I'll be able to create more accessible um, effective tools. So I'm just going back to my home state to grapple with noise, which is a significant issue, but then kind of looking out and seeing how it's connected to other environmental issues and how are they connected and how are they distributed in communities. I really appreciate that. And I, I think, you know, it's it's important to understand that when you're talking about something that is not evenly distributed, you know, your own experience demonstrates that you really got to go where the consequences are, and this this fireworks activity is a really important um, reminder of that. I, you know, I, I think 
anyone who's got small children knows that you know July Fourth is such a terrible day because they can't sleep. <laughs> but then, you know, for folks who've been traumatized by things that sound like fireworks, guns, right? Th- this yeah. this becomes a real noxious stimulus if if one of the pathways of noise pollution is that it causes stress because your mind has to process what is the sound. Correct. Should I be worried about it? And if it sounds Correct. like a gun, you should be worried about it, even if it's just a firework. Correct. And that was a huge issue that came out when this sort of random firework activity happened the summer of like the the, the summer uh, following the stay at home advisories. I think that was the summer of 2020. And it just seemed suspiciously like it happened only in black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. And for me, the question is, why did that happen? Like I said, that's a that I can go down conspiracy theory territory with that. But I think the main thing that it, that whole experience made me realize is that even as a black woman who I thought was connected to the struggles of my community, I was led down a wrong direction by a journalist's prompt, and then what I could see only outside of my own community. And that really scared me because I always thought of myself as a accessible, you know, open-minded researcher. And here I was being led down this incorrect path by a journalist and what was outside of my own backyard. Mm. It's a it's a really important reminder about the risk of being held hostage to our own bubbles. Yeah, and, absolutely. And it happens absolutely. intellectually, it happens, you know, as as researchers, as activists uh you know as as a public servant you, you assume the world looks like what your world looks like yeah and you know and you know i think i think both you, you and i have the experience of uh living in circumstances that are not the same as the ones we've always lived in and Correct. the ones from which many of our people come from and Correct. even then you can start to to forget that the world doesn't always look this way um correct uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really really important insight, and I really appreciate you sharing it, and um, and so much insight about the the risk of noise pollution and uh, and in and, and sound, um, even though you like it, you know, can can sometimes hurt you. Uh, our guest today was uh, Professor. Sorry, um, our guest today was Professor Erica Walker, and she is the RGSS Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at Brown University. Um, uh, Professor Walker, I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your perspective. Same. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to meet you. I love meeting new people, so it's really nice to meet you. The privilege was mine. I hope you'll come back. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. New research from the FDA shows that people transmitted SARS-CoV-2 to white-tailed deer at least 100 times in 2021 and early 2022. And get this, deer transmitted it back to humans at least three times. The findings, published in the journal Nature, suggest the possibility that SARS-CoV-2 has established a new reservoir host in deer. Remember, coronaviruses routinely hang out in animals, and the most likely hypothesis regarding its initial spread into humans is through a raccoon dog. The implications here should be worrying. As I'm sure you and your immune system know, this virus mutates quite easily. And the fact that it's spreading in deer suggests that it has a whole other playing field, unvaccinated and unbothered by quarantining or other public health measures in which to continue to evolve. And that simply increases the probability of a new variant that could evade our immune responses emerging from within the deer population. Not saying it's going to happen, just saying it could happen. 
In a shakeup that hits to the core of health science, Stanford President Mark Tessier-Levine will resign over a report regarding allegations of data tampering involving 12 research articles on which he was an author dating back to before he was president of Stanford University. The report was issued in response to allegations that the renowned neuroscientist had knowingly engaged in research misconduct. The panel did find that misconduct, but concluded that Tessier-Levine was not directly involved in it, though he did act slowly to correct it. Beyond being simply the most salacious story in science right now, it's also a reminder of how the process works. The whole premise of science, after all, is radical transparency. Though the findings of the report do clear Tessier-Levine of directly manipulating data, the consequence of failing to meet the bar even after malfeasance was discovered will cost him one of the most coveted jobs in academia. But the findings should also implicate the publication industrial complex itself. One of the big challenges that we have in science is that so much of it is relegated in the academy. And the academy, for far too long, has rewarded research publications over everything else. There are two challenges here. The first should be obvious. The push for speed and volume makes this kind of malfeasance simply more likely. The second is more insidious. Science requires replication. Trust but verify, you can say. But you can't get tenure verifying. You've got to do new stuff. And because there's no reward for verification, it just doesn't get done, which means that our entire scientific enterprise has become more brittle. Rather than testing and retesting our foundations, we often build upon old material that isn't always sound, as this example demonstrates. Beyond one university president losing his job, I hope that the situation forces a broader conversation about how the incentives of universities may contribute to this kind of situation. Finally, stay cool out there, folks. We've been experiencing the hottest summer in recorded history. In Phoenix, they've had 24 straight days of 110 degree or hotter weather. That's a record, and it's also deadly. In fact, heat waves are the deadliest of all weather events. They kill more people than hurricanes, tornadoes, and floods combined. And that makes sense if you think about it. We're warm-blooded, which means we need our body temperatures to be exactly 98.6 degrees. We can't deviate much or we suffer the consequences. But here's the problem. It's a lot easier to warm yourself up when it's cold than it is to cool yourself down when it's hot. Add layers to conserve body heat, move around to generate heat, burn something to benefit from the stored heat inside it. But getting cooler? There's only so much clothing you can take off after all. The body overheats quite easily. And our natural defenses like sweating are only minimally effective. Sure, we've invented things like air conditioning, but it's expensive. Too many folks in our country simply can't afford it. And burning that much energy to keep us cool? Well, it just contributes to the problem that's leaving us so hot in the first place. Because all of this should remind us that climate heating isn't a distant worry. It's already here. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review the show. It really does go a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some America Dissected merch. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emilik Frank. Vasily Svitopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takar Sazawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. This 
This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the view and opinion of Wayne County, Michigan, or its Department of Health, Human, and Veteran Services. For a quick and punchy take on the state of our world and how many Twitter clones it can possibly sustain, look no further than Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just a few minutes, you'll be up to speed on the day's top news stories, as well as stories that may have gone under your radar. New episodes are out every weekday. Subscribe to What A Day Now wherever you get your podcasts.